Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Good evening. I'm Jay Brown, a member of the Alaska Black Caucus serving on the Health Committee, an organization that champions the lives of Black people in areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Thank you for joining us for tonight's community conversation, a dialogue with the healthcare system. Please remember that this conversation is being recorded for rebroadcast, so please keep yourselves on mute. If you have questions, use the chat and we will try our best to get to them all after our panelists provide some introductory information. Please welcome tonight's moderator, Teresa Burvell, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Jay. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Burvell, and I work at Providence in Anchorage and a member of the Alaska Black Caucus Health Committee. I'm honored and humbled to be the moderator for today's session. I would like to introduce the panelists. We are so excited to have this conversation and grateful to the presenters providing us with expert information and variety of perspectives and insights on our dialogue regarding the healthcare system consisting of the Black community members and Black healthcare and public health professionals experience. As part of preparing for today's session, we have a list of questions that I will pose to the panelists. Our goal today is to provide you information so you can make informed decisions for you, your families, and your friends. To deepen not just your knowledge, but equally importantly, issues and needs pertinent to the health of Black people. I would like to take this time to welcome all our panelists. Please join me to thank them for being here. First is Jada Eisenhall. Jada Eisenhall is a doctoral candidate serving as a psychology intern at Providence. She listens to the stories of people of color to guide their healing from social injustice and trauma to that so that they can live into their legacies. Her hobbies include cooking, outside activities, and art. She is a California-born and raised woman who now calls Alaska home with her husband. Next is Dr. Rachel Lesher. Dr. Rachel Lesher is a pediatric endocrinologist at Alaska Native Medical Center, where she cares for babies, kids, and teens with hormone problems. She completed medical school at University of Missouri, her pediatrics residency at University of California, Irvine, and her pediatric endocrinology fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis. She moved to Alaska from Missouri in 2011 and has enjoyed becoming a member of this community. Next, we have Kenneth McCoy. Kenneth McCoy serves as the Region Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer for Providence, Alaska. He's responsible for coordinating the Providence, Alaska efforts to promote culturally competent patient-centered care, as well as diversity and inclusion initiatives throughout the workforce and community. Prior to joining Providence, 
Kenneth served as the chief of police for the Anchorage Police Department in Anchorage, Alaska. We also have Marvin B. Figueroa. Marvin serves as a director of the Office of Intergovernmental and External Affairs at the US Department of Health and Human Services. In this capacity, he is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, principal advisor on strengthening intergovernmental relationships with state, local, territorial, and tribal governments, as well as private sector, nonprofit, faith-based, and other external partners to advance the administration's health and human services priorities. Dr. Director Figuera is originally from La Sabre, Honduras, a proud Garifuna. Last but not the least, we have Precious Walker, a native of Chicago's South Side. Ms. Walker excelled academically and athletically at some of the top institutions. After earning her Master's of Public Health from DePaul University, she wanted to use her education to improve healthcare systems. As a global public health expert, she has used her multiple talents to bridge the gap between theory and healthcare practice. In particular, she utilizes media platforms to promote health and wellness that examines COVID, diabetes, maternal child health, and women wellness in disadvantaged and minority communities. Currently, she is the health equity manager for CDC on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services in Alaska. Please join me to welcome our panelists and thank you all for being here as we share in this dialogue about experiences of the Black community, Black professionals, and the healthcare system. I would also like to welcome our virtual audience, both locally and nationally. We are glad you are joining our panel for this conversation. We will take audience questions at the end of the question and answer session. One of the things we are doing tonight is a short presentation. When we return from the presentation, we will invite our panelists who will share any thoughts that they have from the presentation. And then we'll continue with the question and answer session. Ms. Walker, you may please begin with your presentation titled The Art of Implementing that will look at the examples of health disparities, what health equity looks like, and how we can achieve the healthcare triple aim by all of us playing our parts to build equity relationships. Thank you for having me. I am Ms. Precious Marie Walker, and it's my honor. Over the past few weeks, the Black Caucus was able to have professional people talk about health disparities, health equity, and the misjustice that African Americans experience in the healthcare system. Today, I realize it's very important for us to address disparities, but how do we do that? We need to use evidence-based solutions and implement them into the, into the communities in which we claim we are serving. So welcome to our presentation the art of implementing. Many of you have been bombarded by a plus of information about equality and equity. However, what does equality mean from equity? Many people say we're fighting for equity. I disagree with that. Why? Well, equity is nothing but a bandage for the disproportionate 
issues that African-Americans and other minorities experience. Therefore, I'm personally, and some of these panelists, if not all, have been fighting for justice. Justice is a system in which they're holding healthcare professionals accountable for the systems in which was maintained, not because of the historical nature and the historical injustice, but the systems that was maintained and still effective today. Once we fight for justice, we are required to acknowledge the things that are still taking place. And we are also required to implement those solutions that has been theorized through our papers for many decades. Step one, talking about the social determinants of health. Social determinants of health is defined as the economic and social conditions that influence individuals and group differences in health status. It is also asserted that if you reach a certain level in your career, or you have a certain prestigious job, you have the ability to have access to healthcare, great healthcare, and the great doctors at the great institutions. I argue that this fails to acknowledge the nuances that people of color in particular face when they are trying to receive quality healthcare, not just healthcare, but quality healthcare. Example one, Dr. Suzanne Moore. Dr. Suzanne Moore, reach what many people will put at the top of the totem pole here in America, being a physician. She was a family physician in the state of Indiana. However, unfortunately, she contracted COVID-19 on the front lines in 2020. I can't tell you that story, but I think it's best that you hear it straight from her mouth. Allison, plus right. I encourage you to type in Dr. Suzanne Moore and go to YouTube. The reason why I already figured that this would happen is because they are trying to censor Dr. Suzanne Moore's story. In that story, she explicitly stated if she was not a African-American woman, but white, she would not be going through this. She also stated that she had to beg the physicians for pain medications because she had trouble breathing. As you already know, COVID-19 negatively impact your breathing. The doctors dismissed her claims and said there was nothing wrong with her. She went to Facebook Live and recorded a seven to 10 minute video, which is now hard to find because they took it down. She was released prematurely and had to go to a different hospital within two hours. After she went to that hospital, they said it, was, it looked like she was on a better turnaround. Unfortunately, she succumbed to her COVID-19. With COVID-19 killing her, her video kind of went viral despite the media trying to silence her. So I really encourage you to look up Dr. Suzanne Moore to hear for yourself what she has to say. It's important. Example two, Kira Johnson. Kara Johnson and her husband was happy to welcome their second child. They went to one of the top hospitals here in the United States. Cedar Sinai High School. After she received her C-session, she was able to grow into recovery. She was able to spend some time with her baby. However, her husband quickly noticed that the catheter had pink solution in it, which was blood. He warned the doctors and the nurses that my wife is in pain and I noticed pink and blood coming out. They dismissed him. He asked them again. They finally said, you know, she's really not a priority. There's nothing wrong with her. By the time they, she became a priority to them, 
it was too late. She bled internally for 10 hours and her abdomen had four liters of blood in it. Unfortunately, she passed away. If you want to know more about Kira Johnson and her story, please go to For Kira and For Mom's website. Also, it's important to note that the CDC found that Black women experience maternal, maternal maternity rate three times higher than their white counterparts. Example three. Although I wanted to provide another example of African-American and the injustice in which we still endure today, unfortunately, as I stated earlier, the media is suppressing the information because they rather focus on the Tuskegee experiment as if that was the only experiment that African-Americans experienced. It's many more. However, I'm not going to go into that tonight. Tonight, we're going to focus on the things that are recent and still going on today. So Josh Rickerson, he's becoming almost a poster board for people who cannot afford medication. After turning 26, he was no longer allowed to or eligible to be on his parents' health insurance. As a type one diabetic, it was imperative that he take insulin shots. Because he could not afford the $2,500 insulin shot, he opted to take over-the-counter medication, which cost $25. The issue with that is the medicine is not necessarily equivalent for his body type and his disease. That medicine that was over-the-counter did not work. His blood sugar constantly fluctuated. Unfortunately, he was found at work with his blood sugar 17, higher, 17, 17 times higher than the normal amount. In the hospital, he suffered around three or four strokes and eventually he passed away. He was only 26. Also, as you can see, the United States is more likely, an uh, individual person here living in the United States is more likely to spend more money on medication than other people in any other country. So what do we do? How can we implement and move the conversation forward? I said, let's organize and mobilize. Organize, organizing and mobilization is two different terms. When we organize something, we are getting like-minded individuals together who are trying to promote and implement different solutions, but we need you, the community, to mobilize. Actually take part in these conversations. Actually talk to your healthcare team. Also talk to the people who make the laws in your states or your communities. A great example of organization and mobilization is what we're doing today with the Black Caucus. The Black Caucus has to organize a series of events that's organization. However, we have people on the team who mobilize and encourage you all to come, and you all came, so thank you. Were you here to talk? Here, you got to talk to healthcare professionals and hear our experience and what we could do as a team to move the conversation forward. Or, number two, what the caucus done. COVID 19 negatively impacts Black people and other people of color. And sometimes we are not able to get to the vaccination site. So, the Black Caucus partnered with the Public Health Department and created a vaccine clinic in Shiloh. I am encouraging you to either A, get vaccinated, or B, booster, or C, come out and just to ask healthcare providers questions if you're still a little bit weary about the health vaccines. That's why we hear from. So I need you to mobilize, meaning you come, bring your friends, bring your boyfriend, your girlfriend, and whoever else, and come down to Shiloh. Another 
event of organizing and mobilization, which is great at the law level, has been the ACA Act, Affordable Care Act. Most people have the misinterpretation Affordable Care Act is only for those who do not have jobs. Unfortunately, that is not true. So I want to stop everybody from thinking that right now. It's for anyone who wants health care insurance. Sometimes our employers do not give us the best health care. So the ACA Act allows you to look at different markets and you could buy into a health care system or a health care plan that fits you and your family needs. Also, it's certain provisions that ensure that physicians will see a person regardless of their insurance status. I conclude if we the healthcare health equity premium, not only in our healthcare systems, but also when we're talking into the communities, we will see progress on both sides of the spectrum, not only in diversity and leadership, but also with our patient outcomes. I would like to note diversity goes beyond color. Please do not make the mistake believing just because a person have the same race as you, they have the same heart as you, or they want to close health disparity gaps. As a person who worked in the field and who had to sit at the table and fight on your behalf, that is not true. So you need to push everybody to the panel asking when will this disparity gap close? Because this is something that we go on for decades. This is not new. What does that look in health equity practice, Ashley? We need to encrypt the staff, making sure that they are treating every patient equally, but also incorporating the biopsychosocial model. The biopsychosocial model is where a patient a physician recognize that other things negatively impact your health. So I need to increase the referral rates. For example, I, as a physician, can't help you biologically or physiologically, but if you're in an abusive relationship, I cannot help you with that. I will send you to somebody like a psychologist, a therapist, or a social worker. So therefore, it's important for me to refer you to that. How do you, as a patient, come in? I need you to hold your physicians accountable. If they're doing something wrong and don't feel like, oh my God, maybe I'm tripping. Don't say that to yourself. You know without a shadow of a doubt when something's not going wrong, if somebody is not hearing you. I advise you and strongly encourage you, do not sit there and stay in the hospital and continue to pay that physician for doing nothing for you. You need to leave that physician and go to a different physician. Also, you need to contact patient services and let them know what's happening. So therefore, they could start being a lookout, like, okay, something's going on with this physician having any complaints. Also, we need to influence the public, not only privately, but everywhere like we're doing now. We need to talk about the current issues and not only focus on the Tuskegee experiment or the other experiments in which people do not like to talk about. We have many disparity gaps and I'm going to just let you all know this now. Sometimes the professionals on TVs use the Tuskegee experiment as a scapegoat to avoid talking about the disparity gaps because they don't want to really address them. Now, although that would take some time to actually implement solutions, which I and my other panelists are actively doing, I want you to know, please do not give up on people who's actually doing the hard work, coming out there, trying to meet with you all and building that relationship. Like the late and great 
not everything that is faced can be changed. However, nothing will be changed if it's not faced. Thank you. Thank you so much, Precious. What a powerful presentation. At this point, I'm going to open it up for the Q&A session by first asking the panelists to please share any thoughts that you have on the presentation regarding the health disparities. And Dr. Lisha, I would ask you to go first. Um, please feel free to share any comments on the presentation. Hi, so first of all, thanks uh, for including me in this panel. And um, I do want to uh, acknowledge and thank Ms. Walker for all of the excellent talks um, and points that were brought up today. Um, some of the things that stood out for me, um, I'm, I'm a solution-oriented person, and so I really appreciated the uh, points about how we can improve access to care with things like um, the Affordable Care Act, um, immunization clinics, um, and um, other uh, increasing the um, knowledge and decreasing some of the barriers to um, improve not only equity, but um, justice and social justice. So I really appreciated that. Oh, thank you so much. So Ms. Jada Eisenhower, do you want to add any thoughts? Yeah, I really appreciated the image that Ms. Walker put up of the um, equality, equity, and justice. So for a long time um, in my training, we got the equality and equity images, um, but the justice one really um, just highlights how what the problem is and how to appropriately address it in a way that makes better sense than what we've had for a while. And so. Um, I really appreciate that that image has been growing and I hope that it's it's uh, catches fire so that we can keep moving toward justice and not just equity. Thank you. I've, I've heard that comment from so many people that they are really happy to see the justice piece. And sometimes in some of the images, they even add liberation. So that's wonderful. Thank you. And now to um, Director Figuera, any, any comments on the health disparities from CDC perspectives? Well, I, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And uh, on behalf of Secretary Becerra, thank you for allowing us to participate in this conversation. Uh, look, I thought the presentation was a good one. Um, I think it's been a long 23 months. Um, COVID-19 has claimed the lives of more than 900,000 Americans. Uh, many of them look like, look like me. Uh, look like us um, and come from communities like ours. Um, and I, I think what the presentation brought to, to bear is that this, this pandemic has, has shown us a social racial injustice and has brought it to the forefront of, of public health. Uh, it's something that this administration is very much aware of, we were working against, and uh, we're glad to have your partnership in making sure that we're confronted ahead on. So thank you for allowing me to participate in this conversation. Thank you so much. And um... Just to bring it specific to Alaska, recently in 2019, there was actually um, a research study, a meta-analysis that was done um, regarding Alaska healthcare transformation. And the overall findings um, showed that due to competition for resources, not all stakeholders put top priority on reducing health disparities in, in Alaska. 
it notes that every comprehensive healthcare reform that seeks to improve the health of Alaskans, especially Black, um, Black people, um, needs to be done by enhancing patient and professionals' experience of care and should also take care of the types of populations being served and the types of health services that's being delivered as well as the outcomes. Um, this means that we should have access to primary care, we should have coordinated care, we should have health information technology, we should have good insurance and payment systems, as well as um, we should have, even for non-medical items such as social determinants of health, including housing, transportation, and food. So where am I going with this question? My next question to you, um, to Jada, is that what does access to healthcare, including primary care, behavioral care, specialty services, looks like in Alaska and specifically in Anchorage today? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. I can speak um, primarily to the behavioral health aspect of it. So um, around the community in Anchorage in particular, there are clinics that have um, access to or accept Medicaid and Medicare insurance. Um, and there are a good number of those, but most accept um, private pay or private insurance. And so sometimes it's difficult for our patients to find um, community resources that can also accept their Medicaid or Medicare insurance. Um, when we move in Alaska overall, there are some places that offer telehealth services, but in terms of getting the psychology, the therapy services that are needed in the rural communities and in the islands, that is a bit more difficult. And so we have um, community providers, uh, providers, lay counselors that are trained and work in those areas. And then some of the clinicians go out and visit once a month, twice a month um, to provide more support. So really the access um, comes around uh, the type of insurance and that is a barrier um, to the access, but there are a good amount of people in Anchorage in particular that serve outerlying communities as well. Okay, thank you so much. So I know that when um, Precious presented, she talked about the ACA and how that's another way for people to get insurance. Do you know as, um, a healthcare provider, um, how, how do we educate patients, especially um, Black patients when they come in? Um, do, you, do you even include education on the availability of insurance coverage and how to get those accesses if they don't have it? So at the clinic that I work with, I'm really fortunate to have a team that includes social workers and a variety of different um, providers. And so we work together very much in getting people signed up for financial assistance, for their Medicaid paperwork, for their Medicare paperwork. And so we're very fortunate in our clinic to have that readily available. Um, so when I notice in the chart that there is not any health insurance or if the person is talking with me about concerns around paying for medications or paying for a procedure, then that's when we're able to have a conversation and get social work involved with that to help with the paperwork. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so happy that you have that services available as part of the care that's being provided. So this question actually goes to um, Ms. Walker. 
I'm sure as you were doing your research, you talked about the fact that being Black does not mean we all look the same or we present the same symptoms. So could you explain to um, you know, um, everyone here how cultural differences, even amongst Blacks, impacts how we access care? Great question. Sometimes people make the mistake believing that Blacks or African-Americans are monolithic. That's untrue. You have to look within Afri African as a whole. We have different subgroups from the diaspora. So for example, a person who might identify as Nigerian American is not the same person who is Jamaican American. They have two different cultural cultures, even though they are Black. So you would probably approach them differently because in their history, what they experienced is different. So you have to be culturally competent to understand there is difference between the subgroups. Also, for example, a person who, who is affluently Black is different from someone who might grow up impoverished. Most people who are impoverished um, in African-American communities, they grew up seeing firsthand the negative impacts of not having access to healthcare services, not having access to pharmacy. That's called pharmacy deserts. They're more likely to live in food deserts, meaning they don't have the ability to have healthy foods. Whereas somebody who is more affluent, they're used to having those amenities. So when they go into a hospital, they probably won't pick up on the different nuances that physician or that nurse might have, because in their mind, they believe, well, I achieve this status. And that's why it was important for me to talk about Dr. Suzanne Moore, because even though she was a physician, even though she um, was able to make a certain amount of money to a person who have implicit bias, she was somebody who was nothing but a Black woman. That's why it's important. Also, it's important to know when I say, don't believe just because I'm a Black physician or a Black healthcare provider that I have the same heart issue. That's not true. As a public health practitioner, I was able to work in different states and different cities talking about public health issues. Early on in my career, I broke a food desert. And this woman, she was African-American, and she told me, this is what she said, let me tell you something, child. I'm, I'm younger than her, or was younger than her. She said, it's even bananas at the liquor store. That is the woman you have at a public health department. Therefore, that African-American woman is not fighting for people who live in this um, food desert. Whereas, because I have that heart, because I saw the negative impact of food desert have on health conditions, such as diabetes. That's one of the reasons why African-Americans, as well as other minorities, are more likely to have diabetes or high blood pressure. They, they're not going to say, oh, that's more likely because they live in a food desert. They don't want to address it because most of the time they're not really interested in fixing the problem. Hence why they tell you, you have bananas at the liquor store. That's not even a healthy diet. So that's who I'm also fighting uh, against. Not only trying to fight against the law for you all, but also some people who I need to just tweak their brain just a little bit, you know, a little bit more training. But we're going to get there. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Walker. That, that's really dynamic. And thank you for sharing that. My next question goes to Director Figura. I would like you to address this question. 
Are there barriers and needs specific to the Black community? And if so, how might this be solved, especially when it comes to access to primary care services? That's a great question. Um, are there barriers? I think the answer is yes. Um, I think when it comes to healthcare access, for example, um, it's sometimes a lack of information, but also is a lack of affordable healthcare coverage. So when I think about what Ms. Jada said, for example, is the barrier there is and how to get through it is ensuring that our providers are working with individuals to make sure they understand uh, the access that is available um, and working with them to sign up. Uh, sometimes signing up is not easy, right? And individuals have, have lives. Um, and it's, so it's difficult to take the time to be able to do it. But our providers like Ms. Jada, uh, they allow individuals to understand that coverage is available to them and work with them to make sure that they're signed up. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, private insurance through the health, health insurance uh, marketplace, uh, but it's also Medicaid too. I mean, Alaska was one of those states that uh, was gracious enough to expand Medicaid um, and, and be able to provide coverage through, through, that, uh, through that service. Um, and so we're able to see more individuals be able to access uh, health insurance services through, through Medicaid expansion. And so that's one piece of it. Uh, the second is like we also see when it comes to primary care, um, ensuring that there is enough providers in the community. Um, and that is a, a challenge associated sometimes with reimbursement, uh, making sure that reimbursement is adequate for those providers to, to serve Medicaid patients. It continues to be a challenge, uh, but it's one that states like Alaska and, and the administration is committed to, to getting through because we know that when you have primary care, uh, you don't have to get to the point where you have complications with a particular illness or disease uh, to get the service that you need because you're able to get it um, at the beginning of the onset or be able to prevent that onset to begin with. And so those are issues that we're working here in a national level. We have great partners in Alaska who are working with us on that. Thank you so much. Um, would you be able to speak to some of the social determinants of health? Is it something that has surfaced as a barrier? for people to access care? Well, you know, social determinants of health is one of those issues that we are uh, definitely focused on here on the national level um, and working with states on. I think for a long time, we, we, we didn't really focus on the fact that there are conditions that people live in that actually influence their health. And so when I kind of re reflect on the comments that Ms. Walker made, it is food deserts, right? And how does that uh, contribute to the fact that folks don't have access to healthy foods? Um, it is housing conditions. Um, and what does that do for individuals' health? I think about folks who get asthma, right, because of, of where they live. Um, it is the housing discrimination, right, that kind of forces some individuals into subpar living conditions. Uh, transportation also factors into that, right? And so here in the administration, under the leadership of Secretary Becerra, uh, we're looking at how, what does that look like when it comes to health, but also how do we collaborate with other departments? Um, oftentimes, health falls with the Department of Health and Human Services, but Department of Education has a role to play, Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce. And so we're breaking down those barriers to be able to work across divisions because we know that all these factors influence overall people's health, but also life expectancy. Um, and so that's what we're focused on working on on this, on this end and then working with states to be able to kind of tackle those barriers. Wow, thank you. That's that's so comprehensive. It's great to hear that, you know, the CDC has this as one of its core um, things that they are doing. So thank you for sharing that. And this 
next um, question here goes to Miss um, Eisenhower, and it's about um, what can the system do better for Black people and people of color? Because we know that, for example, here um, in Alaska, the top most common causes of death is cardiovascular disease, chronic respiratory disease, unintentional injuries, stroke, and cancer. And in fact, the leading cause of death is cancer. However, of all these diseases that I've listed, um, four out of five causes of death can be preventable and curable um, if only people are getting the access that they need. So what can the system do better for Black people and people of color? Absolutely. So um, kind of in speaking on educating um, people about um, the health insurance options, also on the flip side, educating, taking the time to educate our patients about what are alternative or um, just things that we can do in our day-to-day -day life that helps to prevent those chronic diseases from coming with coming on and partnering with our primary care providers um, and having our primary care providers taking the time um, in our roles to talk about the things that can be done at home, um, that in the community, going out in nature, diet, food, exercise, really the social determinants of health we keep talking about. And um, those are things that I really want our system to um, address more in those initial visits, whether it's annual visits, um, those check-in visits to make sure that we're not focusing just on, are we taking our medications, doing the procedures, getting the referrals, but what is your like holistic life going on? What's going on in your life? How can we get you connected to services? Um, so I really want to see that become more integral to our healthcare system. And also on the flip, um, in addition to that, hiring more um, physicians of color, more providers of color, um, so that people feel that they can connect with somebody who looks like them, who um, has a similar background and can improve trust and rapport. Um, that is another area that can be helpful. Wow, thank you. As we talk about breaking down some of these barriers, you know, like you talk about um, insurance, getting access. My question to um, Dr. Alicia is that, what are your priorities when it comes to health? And, you know, we talk about health and, you know, food deserts, but what does it even mean to be healthy? So Dr. Alicia, can you, can you help us with that? What, what are your priorities when it comes to health and what does it mean to be healthy? So I, I think of health as um, allowing one's whole person to be able to manage threats to the system, as well as um, be sort of the most you that you can be. So people who have good health can still have chronic disease, they can be disabled, they can have immune system dysfunction, they can have um, all sorts of different diseases, but may still be able to have access to health to allow them to manage their disease, manage um, their overall 
humanity. And so when I'm thinking of my patients, many of whom do have various complex chronic diseases, um, my goal for them is to be um, the most, the best version of themselves that they can be, that they want to be. Um, and so sometimes I feel like we often put too much of the responsibility or the onus on the person, on the individual. Um, and so some of the things that I think about in terms of priorities and when it comes to health is actually taking barriers away from people rather than um, putting that responsibility, you know, to manage their high blood pressure or diabetes or whatever on to that person and instead thinking about how can we as a society be healthier. Um, and that includes many of the things that the other panelists have discussed, um, addressing education and transportation and um, uh, housing and food deserts. And, and then of course, thinking of and addressing racism that we experience in this town, this day and this country that um, significantly impact health. Um, so those are some of the things that I always like to think about because I think we do too often put the, the responsibility on the person without sort of acknowledging some of the societal and systemic responsibilities that we have. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just so glad that you raised the last point about systemic responsibilities because um, I was just curious, what does the training look like for the staff in your organization um, to work with diverse populations? So I smiled at first because I thought that you were asking about the training in medical schools, um, which is varied um, depending on the area of not just medical schools, but in um, all types of health care education. Um, I, as you said, I work at Alaska Native Medical Center, so um, our institution really has a strong um, focus to um, ensure that the vision of the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium is met, that Alaska Native people are the healthiest people in the world. And we know that Alaska Native people can be of many different races, including Black and White and um, Latina and um, all different races, as well as Indigenous um, Alaska Native people. And so, um, so our training at our institution really revolves around focusing on um, the health and care of Alaska Native people and Native, and Native American people living in Alaska. Um, we have a real big focus on trauma-informed care and understanding um, how the past trauma can affect current people health, current health. Um, thinking about things like epigenetics, where um, past trauma can be passed along um, from parent to offspring, and even in future generations. And so our institution really does do a lot of training and focusing on some of those determinants. Um, and then um, ANTHD has also been a part of the Healthy, Healthy Communities 2030 Goals, um, which has a special focus on addressing um, racism in healthcare. Thank you so much for giving us the perspective from your organization. I'm going to go to Jada. Can you tell us what 
your organization does with training and how that looks like um, for the staff? Um, yeah, absolutely. So our clinic is um, a training facility. We have residents and interns, uh, medical residents and psychology interns and students. So we, um, in our groups, we get uh, weekly lectures. And so during those lectures is where they focus in on giving us the um, education around the medical and behavioral health aspects, but then also around the cultural. So in our clinic, we serve um, a diverse and ethnically diverse population. Um, and in particular, we get training around Hmong populations, refugees and immigrants and Alaska natives, um, of course. And so we do a lot of training around that in our lectures. And then it is on um, the onus of the provider to look into that ourselves as well and to be curious and be humble to um, not assume that we know everything about our patient's cultural background because that's impossible. And so in behavioral health, we're moving away from cultural competence and moving toward cultural humility. Um, so just being curious, asking questions, seeking out information on our own. So um, in those ways, that's what organizationally, organizationally we're doing, but then also professionally, um, that's where we're also going to. Wow, thank you so much for your focus on um, cultural competencies, because I think that definitely um, helps eradicate some of the implicit bias and challenges that um, patients have when it comes to trust of the system. So that's, that's really wonderful. Um, I think um, we are really getting to the top of the hour. And I'm going to ask this last question, and then we are going to go to Allison to see if there are any questions in the chat box. But truly, um, I think without dialogue, um, you know, we might be missing a very big um, opportunity to assist um, individuals, especially um, African Americans, when it comes to how can they access the resources that you have within your organizations. So this question um, goes to um, Dr. Alicia, um, but any of you can respond. And then after that, we'll, we'll go to the chat box. How can healthcare providers be more responsive to the black community uh, and how on how to have a more constructive dialogue? So, how can healthcare providers be more responsive to the Black community for us to have a more constructive dialogue? Sure, I'm happy to address that, although I see that Kenneth McCoy has um, hand up, so I didn't know if there was something you wanted to say first. Oh, okay, sure, please. Oh, great. Well, thank you. And for, first of all, it's just an honor for me to be here tonight. And I, I could sit here and listen to all of you esteemed professionals um, you know, for, for uh, several hours, but I, I just wanted to jump in real quick and, and um, say, first of all, I appreciate all of the information outlining how healthcare disparities impact people of color and other minorities at alarming rates. And we know the lack of access to quality of treatment and favorable outcomes must be improved. And so in line with this question, I think it's twofold. Um, we have to take a, a, an approach of education uh, with our healthcare providers to address issues of implicit bias and um, really 
um, bringing to the forefront the stories and experiences that people in our Black community have had uh, with the healthcare system to bring that level of understanding. And the other aspect is uh, the aspect that I intend to take um, in my role as the Chief Diversity and Equity and Inclusion Officer for Providence, Alaska, is getting out, um, meeting with the Black community in conversations just like this to hear what the concerns are, to hear what those barriers are, and then start working together to come up with ways to uh, you know, make the system better. And my call to action is basically tackling three areas, and that's affordability, access, and outcomes. So um, again, I, I just wanna thank you all for allowing me to be part of this conversation. I, I learn so much every time I take part, and I'm just hoping uh, that through these types of discussions, we can identify those barriers and find the solutions to bring true health equity to the underserved. So thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Mr. McCoy, for your, your focus on quality through conversations and dialogues. That's wonderful. So, wow, the time went by so quickly. I'm going to turn my attention um, to, um, to Alison. And Alison, perhaps you can check the checkbox, but whatever questions are in there, please feel free. Any one of you can answer and respond. Sure. Um, any, to anyone on the panel, could you briefly share why racism is a public health crisis and what does that mean? Racism being a public health crisis, however, this just showed the delay response in the healthcare. And I'm a part, well, although I've been fighting for it, but I am a part of the system now as a worker and addressing the issues that I talked about earlier. It's a delay response. Why is health racism issue is because it's killing minorities and secondly minorities have so much to offer to the world and we already offer so much to the world if you think about some of the great quotation marks experiments they did on us we have most of the medical experience happened because of our pain not only the tuskegee experiment where you got to learn about syphilis but when we think about past years which they never talk about they allowed African-American women to come in believing they was going to get a pasmere, but instead they was removing their ovaries. Or even if we think about radiation treatment, um, back in the 40s and 50s, they did an experiment where they told young African-American boys that they found a cure for ringworms, but instead they was actually doing a radiation treatment, learning about radiation for a cancer patients. I advise and encourage you to look up Virtus Hartman. We are basically the people who help push medical system for, unfortunately, for our own pain. And yet they're still doing it today. They're not only killing us in the medical room, but they're killing us on the street just because of the color of our skin. They say they love Dr. Martha Luther King, despite the fact they don't want to acknowledge he was assassinated. And they're still judging us, not about the content of our character, but by our skin colors. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Walker. Allison, do we have more questions? We, we do, yes. Um, for Ken McCoy or Dr. Lesher, um, from your work experience, do you see um, any critical information gaps that currently exist to fully address health access issues for people of color in Alaska or to any of the panelists? 
I'm happy to speak to that briefly, but if anyone else wants to jump in, feel free. I, I'm kind of insulated within the Alaska Native healthcare community. Um, some of the information gaps that I try to address with my own patients is knowing how to sign up for insurance or how to get access to Medicaid or Medi um, or um, how to access disability services, for example. So that's just one small piece of access is just figuring out how to work work with the system. But I, I'll let others address it too. And I'll, I'll add a little bit to that. Um... Really, uh, what, what I hear most often is it comes down to the lack of trust that uh, people of color have in the healthcare system. And, and it's oftentimes can be even more basic, such as uh, transportation needs, or I can't get the time off for work or childcare issues that build up to uh, prevent access. Um, I, I often um, hear um, um, people talk of when they uh, receive advice to talk to your, your healthcare provider about whatever the, the topic is for more information. And most black people tell me, I, I don't have a healthcare provider. I, you know, I don't go to the doctor unless I absolutely need to. So those are the types of you know, really basic, but um, uh, common things we see regarding access. And I'll jump in here as well. Um, I think something that I wanna borrow from Mr. Kenneth and Ms. Jada is, um, you know, a lot of this work is hyper-local, um, that we have to be able to be in community and understand what people need um, and be able to connect them to those services. Because uh, sometimes we talk at a level there that people don't understand. And so that's where you see that asymmetry of information. Um, for us in the federal government, because we're, uh, we are in DC, but we also have a regional office um, in, uh, in Region 10, which Alaska is part of, that Ingrid Ulray uh, runs. And so it's able to bring that information that we have here in DC and be able to apply it to the local context and then speak in a language that people actually understand, right? Um, and be able to be in community because oftentimes when you listen to community, uh, they'll tell you what they need. Um, and we just have to listen more and approach this conversation, uh, as Ms. Jada said, with humility and not pretend as if we know everything. Thank you and so much. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask one more question, if that's okay, Teresa, from the chat. Yes, um, please, go ahead. Th there's kind of a combined question for anyone on the panel who would like to contribute. How can we build relationships with the healthcare team? And how can we rebuild trust in the healthcare system for people of color? Just to expand on what the panelists said earlier about healthcare humility, it's important to have collaborative communication. Actually, many years ago, I did a program here in Chicago with the Rush University Center, as well as the UIC Health Center about collaborative communication. What I found out was many physicians take an authoritarian stance when they're talking to their patients. So for example, I'm the doctor, do what I say. And they never took that time to get to know that patient. So we need to make sure as we stated earlier, humility, make sure the physician remember, you are a person too, you do not know everything. You only know some of what you study because if you knew everything, we would not be dealing with disparities today, okay? So make sure you collaborate with your, your um, patient. Patients, please also talk to your physicians. Not only your physicians, sometimes when we think healthcare, we automatically talk about physicians, but remember the pharmacist is also a part of your healthcare team. 
for example, you cannot swallow your medicine because it's too hard on your stomach, let them know that they have the ability to um, give you the liquor form of that medication. Your health care team is so broad. It includes the physician, it includes the public health practitioner, it includes the pharmacist, the nurses, and the social workers. And make sure you tell them what you are going to, because as I stated before, this is a, we're moving towards the thought process of biopsychosocial model, meaning every aspect of you needs to be addressed either by the physician or the social worker and only you have the power to do that and ensure that that physician is doing their job make them earn their money so, so far some physician is skating by but moving forward they're going to earn their money we're going to understand why you have a lot of money okay <laughs> wow thank you oh what a wonderful conversation I wish we could even go on for another hour because <laughs> we barely, you know, touched almost all of our questions. I hope we can continue another day. But at this point, I just want to say a very big thank you. So, you know, for, with gratitude to all of our panelists for such wonderful conversation. And we will turn our attention to um, Miss Precious Walker for the closing statement. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming. I'm going to see if I could pull some strings so we can all come back and next time we just gonna have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with everybody and just do nothing but Q&A. It was too much fun and unfortunately we have to go and I know you all have to go. So let me read this statement to you all. Again, thank you to our program participants and of course you for joining us this evening. We also thank you, our caucus members, the Allies for Change group for their continued support. If you'd like to join our great organization or link to the Allies for Change group within the Alaska Black Caucus, please visit us at the alaskablackcaucus.com. We also like to thank the municipality of Anchorage. This program was supported by the grant awarded by the municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department, the opinions, findings, and conclusion of recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Department of Health, or any of the current organization we work for. We gotta cover ourselves too, okay? <laughs> Be sure to join us right here next Sunday for a dialogue with a new group of panelists. Remember, I am your favorite healthcare provider. Don't ever make me tell you twice. And we will be back again next week. Bye, everyone. Mwah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Alaska Black Caucus.